invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Lamentations 2. Lamentations 2. We come this evening to this chapter of Scripture. Last time we were together, which was not last week because we had an interlude last week into Psalm 118, but last time we were together, we considered the sorrow of Jerusalem in the days of her fall. We considered the devastating consequences of sin in this world and kind of honed in or focused in in a manner of speaking on that. And you shouldn't need me to tell you, and really we, we shouldn't need the Bible to tell us, that the consequences of sin are very real and, and, and all around us. Except that humans have excessively poor attention spans, don't we? And we have an amazing capacity to self-deceive. So we need to hear it. Well, this week we step into the second Lamentation, Lamentations 2. The second poem, recall that Lamentations is broken up into poems. The second arrangement of 22 verses in this acrostic format. And remember exactly how this book is formatted. Chapters 1 and chapters 5 are uh, related in what we call a chiastic form, speaking of Jerusalem's sorrow and the remnant's sorrow, respectively. Chapters 2 and chapters 4 are paralleled as reflections of God's anger, all pointing to chapter 3, the central chapter, which uh, recounts Jeremiah's sorrow, but also his hope, right? This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope, Jeremiah will say in chapter 3. And so we see that there is this uh, opportunity that we'll have to focus in on hope and that coming in the weeks that are to come. Our text this evening is broken up, we might say, into three primary parts. The first part we'll find uh, a description of the destruction of the city and nation through the fierce anger of the Lord. Uh, the focus of this section will be the outpouring of the Lord's wrath. And this is something that we're going to be very familiar with, right? Through Jeremiah. Jeremiah, we saw this time and again. We saw this over and over again. Uh, it should not be unfamiliar to us as we read about the outpouring of God's wrath against the city of Jerusalem. Then as we continue into the second part, it begins with a description of the results of God's wrath and judgment upon the nation, and not just upon the nation, but upon the nation as it relates to the entire world. And then finally, we'll see a call unto the Lord to remember, to consider, and to have mercy. So that's what we're going to see in the breakup of Lamentations 2, and naturally we'll study it this way. You're there in Lamentations 2. Let's read together, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger, and cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel, and remembered not his footstool, in the day of his anger. So we find the anger of the Lord to be that central theme, right? I'm not just making this stuff up. We do see here right at the beginning of the poem that there is a central understanding or a central focus upon the anger of the Lord. And this is of little surprise as the judgment upon Jerusalem was and is a very potent expression of God's anger against sin every day. So Jerusalem is described as having been covered with a cloud her beauty being cast down from heaven 
to earth. Her position before God is having not been remembered. That idea, we even use that expression today, the idea that there's a cloud covering, the idea that, 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 that there's a cloud that is covered, and, and that concept is that things are gloomy or things are not well or things are sorrowful. Uh, if, if I tell my wife that there's a bit of a cloud, a thundercloud above my head today, she knows what I'm saying, and is that I'm probably a little grumpy today, right? That's sort of an idea. So we know this saying, we're familiar with this idea that Jerusalem has been covered with a cloud. There's a, a, a pall of sorrow that is over her. And these sentiments continue throughout the next nine verses. We'll read them together, then let's talk about them. Verses two through 10. The Bible says, the Lord hath swallowed up all the habitations of Jacob and hath not pitied. He hath thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He hath brought them down to the ground. He hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. He hath cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He hath drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. He hath burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devoureth round about. He hath bent his bow like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was as an enemy. He hath swallowed up Israel. He hath swallowed up all her palaces. He hath destroyed his strongholds and hath increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. And he hath violently taken away his tabernacle as if it were of a garden. He hath destroyed his places of the assembly. The Lord hath caused the solemn feast and Sabbaths to be forgotten in Zion and hath despised the indignation of his anger. Uh, uh, in the indignation of his anger, the king and the priest. The Lord hath cast off his altar. <clears throat> he hath abhorred his sanctuary. He hath given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of the solemn feast. The Lord hath purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He hath stretched out a line. He hath not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore he made the rampart and the wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates are sunk into the ground. He hath destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The law is no more. Her prophet also, prophets also find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. They have cast up dust upon their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem hang down their heads to the ground. So we see here the anger of the Lord. It's also worth pointing out the religious nature of this lamentation. Not only does Jeremiah speak of the destruction of the city in these verses, the destruction of the gates in these verses. Not only does he poetically lament the very destruction of the people in these verses, but he takes time to highlight that God, in ending the city and her people in this way, has also ended his enactment of the law. The law has ceased to function. The tabernacle is not functioning. The temple is not functioning. The sacrifices are not being done. The observances are not being done. The Sabbaths are not being done. There's an effective ceasing of the law. As it says in verse 9, the law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. So not only do we see that the law is no more, but we find that God's method, God's divine method by which he has characteristically spoken unto the people has ceased for a time. This is interesting coming from the voice of Jeremiah. 
We don't exactly know when this lamentation was written, and yet what we might presume at this point is perhaps Jeremiah's ministry had ceased. Perhaps it was that at this point, Jeremiah was recognizing that God had, had ceased to deliver unto him messages to speak. And perhaps that is the anguish here as Jeremiah relates this idea that the prophets find no vision from the Lord. And this is tremendously significant as a mindset in Israel. For generations, the city of Jerusalem was convinced that she would never fall because it was there that God had placed his name. It was there that God's law was established. It was there that God's temple rested. And so they truly thought that they were invulnerable because in order for God to overthrow the city, God would have to overthrow his own temple. And God wouldn't do that, right? And here we find the fierce anger of the Lord to be so intense that God was actually quite literally willing to allow his temple to be destroyed, to allow his system to be overwhelmed in order to bring about the judgment that needed to be placed upon the nation of Israel. And they should have seen that coming, for it had been some 100 years since God had begun to tell the nation just how empty their religious rituals were in his eyes. Going all the way back to the first chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 15, we read this. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and the Sabbaths, the callings of the assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. God had been telling them for better than a hundred years that he did not care for their empty rituals. God had been telling them for better than a hundred years that for them just to go through the motions of some, some method of worship that he had prescribed without a heart of love and true submission before him was not doing them any good. So much so that God literally says that the incense and the oblations are an abomination unto him. Was it any trouble for God to go through the process of overthrowing his temple and stopping the Sabbaths and the new moons and the feasts when those feasts and those new moons and those Sabbaths were in God's eyes effectively only operating to mock his holiness. And so they should have seen it coming. They should have known that such an end might be at hand because God had told them that he was displeased. He had been warning for generations that he would hide his face from them, even in spite of their solemn rituals. He had been calling them for generations to repent, to realign their hearts with his own, and so find the mercy and the grace that he desired to impart. But they had wearied the Lord, and lamentations is an accounting 
of the end of their weariness. So we see in these first 10 verses a description of all of the ways that the Lord has afflicted the nation because of their sin. And indeed, they acknowledge as well their sin as we saw in Lamentation 1. Beginning in verse 11, there's a definitive shift in tone, however. The tone of the poem shifts from an account of the devastation to its effects among the people of the world. So we read in verses 11 and 12, Mine eyes do fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. My liver is poured upon the earth for the destruction of the daughter of my people because the children and the suckling swoon in the streets of the cities. They say to their mothers, Where is corn and wine? When they swooned as the wounded in the streets of the city, when their soul was poured out into their mother's bosom. We begin talking directly about Jerusalem before we, we expand this to the world. And this is truly a devastating picture here. Jeremiah speaks of his own sorrow and grief. Not only that his eyes have cried to the point where he can't see out of them, the idea that his eyes fail with tears. I don't know if you've ever been crying so hard that literally everything is blurry because the tears have just completely filled your eyes. But that is what Jeremiah writes about here. But he also says he feels sick. He has no strength to process the sorrow he is feeling for the destruction of the people. And particularly, we'll see the description in a moment of the kind of sorrow that he was experiencing. He talks about his bowels and his liver here. Uh, the idea of, of his, the, the seat of his emotions, when we see the bowels in the scripture, we see that as the, the very center, the very seat of the emotional part of man, that when the bowels yearn upon someone or, or when the bowels uh, as we see here, are troubled. That's the idea of a tremendous emotional pain and an emotional struggle. And he thinks toward the days of the siege, the destruction of the daughter of his people. And he thinks, and what he describes here is sucklings swooning in the streets of the city, little children falling over because they're malnourished, not being able to stand, not being able to get up. He thinks to children seeking the food where there is none. They say to their mothers, where is corn and wine? We need food. We need drink. He's thinking, he says, when they swooned as the wounded in the streets of the city, when their soul was poured out into their mother's bosom. They lay in the streets as if wounded because these children are starving to death. And their mothers hold their sickly bodies in their arms and watching their children die of malnutrition. That's the picture here. Thank God none of us have ever had to experience that in any way, shape, or form in this place and in this time. We're not so far removed from such things, however. You can read accounts of such things in the former Soviet Union through the writings of Alexander Solzhenitsyn or even the, uh, the fictions of Fedor Dostoevsky. You can read of such accounts in China and you can read of such accounts in Cambodia and you can read of such accounts uh, in, in many places throughout the world, even in our century. And Jeremiah is expressing the tremendous and intense sorrow as he thinks to the suffering of these people in Jerusalem. He goes on in verses 13 and 14. What thing shall I take to witness for thee? 
What thing shall I liken to thee, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal to thee that I may comfort thee, O virgin daughter of Zion? For thy breach is great like the sea. Who can heal thee? Thy prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee, and they have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. Jeremiah declares here that he has no comfort left for the nation because their wounds are too great. And that in and of itself has caused Jeremiah a, a measure of sorrow. He says, I've got nothing left. I've got no means left by which to comfort you. They've already gone into captivity. He says, I've got nothing left. These wounds, Jeremiah says, are self-inflicted. Their prophets saw vain and foolish things. They ignored the iniquity of the nation. They sought to divert the iniquity of the nation, the, the minds of the people away from their own iniquity and give them false hope. This is what false prophets do. They stand in front of people who are wallowing in their own selfishness and their sin and they divert their attention from their selfishness and sin and turn their attention to false hopes and false expectations. And of course, we know that this is what happened in those last days. Because when ministers in a nation devote themselves to feel-good lies rather than to faithfully teaching God's word with clarity and obedience, there is very little hope for that nation's spiritual success. We see it in Jeremiah's day. We're seeing it in our own day as well, are we not? Verses 15 and 16. All that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? All thine enemies have opened their mouths against thee. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Certainly, this is the day that we looked for. We have found it. We have seen it. The natural result of this rebellion is judgment. We read about this judgment in the first 10 verses, this anger of the Lord. And the natural result of this judgment is public shame. And this is what we have described in these two verses. Those passing by, they clap their hands, they hiss. That would be the idea of, of um, expressing a manner of shame or of dis, uh, despite, uh, of, of absolute despicable uh, lack of respect. The idea of hissing towards someone, shaking their heads, clapping their hands, asking, wasn't this once the beautiful city? Wasn't this once that city that said that the Lord is their God? Wasn't this once that great destination where Solomon's temple stood in all of its beauty and all of its gold and all of its, uh, all of its lavishness? What is it now? They'll laugh, they'll mock, they'll hiss and gnash their teeth. And they'll say, we were looking forward to this day. We were looking forward to the day when those proud people would fall. We were looking forward to this day when those who claim to have the, the, the one true and only God would see all of, their, all of their claims collapse under the weight of their own sinful choices. They're no different than anyone else. And that day had come. They gloried over the city of God. They gloried over the people of God. They gloried even over God himself. Verse 17. The Lord hath done that which he had devised. He hath fulfilled his word that he hath commanded in the days of old. He hath thrown down and hath not pitied. And he hath caused thine enemy to rejoice over thee. He hath set up the horn of thine adversaries. 
Jeremiah concludes this second portion of the poem by expressing the reality that all of this has been done to Israel in consistency with God's promises. And we've seen this throughout. He's done as he said he would do. He's fulfilled what he promised in Deuteronomy 28, saying he would do it. And once again, don't overlook how important this is. As we've considered during our book sermon, that all of these things which have fallen out unto Israel have done so in accordance with God's faithfulness. In our book sermon, we related this to the joyful reality that God has also promised to restore the nation. But also we are reminded of a blessed truth, that all that Israel experienced was brought upon them through their own choices. What we are reminded through this is that we don't serve a fickle God. We don't serve a God who, because he's had a bad day, gets angry and decides that today I'm going to punish you, today I'm going to hurt you, today I'm going to, I'm going to make you suffer. We don't serve a God that wants to play with us like a puppet on a string, like some child who decides one day that he's going to go out and he's just going to bug the dog. And so the dog who's locked up and you're just going to go and you're going to tease the dog and you're going to bug the dog. Or you're going to go and you're going to make the cat miserable today just because you feel like it. Or you're going to go pluck the, the, the legs off of grasshoppers today just because you feel like being a little malicious. We don't serve the kind of God that decides one day, you know what, I kind of want to see that person squirm a little bit. So let's just, let's just tweak him a little bit. We don't serve a God that slams the door and says, I'm not, I've got a headache today. Leave me alone when we need something from him. We don't serve a fickle God. We don't serve a God who is like us in that way. God is faithful, 100% consistent and just. He doesn't destroy people just for fun. He doesn't get angry for no good reason. And he's slow to anger and abundant in mercy. He's not fickle. Judgment only happens all throughout Scripture. Judgment only happens when a man invites judgment through his rebellion. And this should encourage us. Because if you're under some form of chastening, as we often say, if there's a distance between you and the Lord, you know who moved, and it wasn't the Lord, right? If there's some measure of chastening that you're under. Now, not all suffering is chastening, right? Job suffered, but he was not under chastening. He was under trial. He was under testing. He was under refining. John 15 tells us, Every man that beareth fruit, God purgeth that man or prunes that man that he may bring forth more fruit. A part of the process of fruit bearing is that the Lord is going to refine us. The Lord is going to purge us. But when we are under a manner of judgment, when we are under a manner of chastening, if, our, if we as an individual or our family corporately or our church corporately or even this nation were to fall on some measure of judgment, this one thing we know, it is because of our disposition toward the Lord. And this also we know about the Lord's character, that repentance does incredible things, doesn't it? That humility does amazing things as it relates to God's disposition toward 
man. And so we see this very thing here, that as we have seen this judgment against the people, as we have contemplated the reality of this judgment, verse 17 said, The Lord hath done that which he hath devised. He hath fulfilled the word that he commanded in the days of old. He did not do anything here that he did not say he would do if Israel wandered from him. He did everything in accordance with his promises and his faithfulness. You've seen this before. You've seen somebody walking contrary to sound doctrine and you have seen, because you know the scriptures, the path that you're on and you know the end of that path. This has happened at the church before where somebody has walked away convinced that they were right, convinced that they were on the right path and it was a path that bore the fruit of rebellion. And you could see them walk down that path and you knew what was next. And you knew what was next because the fruit of rebellion is never righteousness. And you could see it and you could tell them as much as you wanted, but they didn't see it. And they walked right into that path, right into that snare. And it's not because you have some sort of tremendous insight. It's because God is faithful, right? And that is natural. That is what we should expect if we're going to walk contrary to the Lord. We come now to the third division. You know that there's 22 verses in this chapter, just like there was in the last chapter. Each verse begins with the first letter of the, of the Hebrew alphabet, consecutively. Okay. And in this third division, we've seen Jeremiah consider God's anger. We've seen the reaction of the city and of the world. And then we see a call unto the nation to do that which we've just spoken of. If it is true that the Lord is faithful, if it is true that God is only operating in consistency with his character, then it is also true that when a man repents, it changes the heart of God. That God changes in response to repentance. So we see a call to repent. Verses 18 and 19. Their heart cried unto the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give thyself no rest. Let not the apple of thine eye cease. Arise, cry out in the night, in the beginning of the watches. Pour out thine heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up thy hands toward him for the life of thy young children that faint for, the hunger, for hunger in the top of every street. Cry, Jeremiah says. Cry out in the night, cry out in the day. Pour out your heart to God like water before the face of the Lord. Cry out for your young who faint of hunger. This is a call unto humility. It's a call unto reflection. The old adage goes that insanity is, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But we humans are kind of insane, aren't we? We start seeing the judgment of the Lord and instead of recognizing it and falling down on our knees in repentance, we explain it away. Well, maybe it's just coincidence. Well, maybe it's something else. Like, in, like the Philistines in the days after they took the ark and they put the ark before their god Dagon and in the morning that, that god Dagon is on his face before the ark. And so they say, well, that's strange and they prop it up again, right? And the next day it's on its face again except its head is chopped off and its hands are chopped off. And they go, hmm, 
Well, that's really interesting. And then all of a sudden their city starts getting plagued. And so they send the ark to another city and that city starts getting plagued. And so they build a brand new cart and they put oxen who have never been yoked up before and they put it all together and they say, well, maybe all of this stuff is just coincidence. Maybe this isn't actually God judging us. So let's just put it on this cart with these oxen who have never gone anywhere before and we're going to keep their mom back and we're going to make sure that, that they have every reason to not go to Jerusalem. And if the cart goes to Jerusalem, then we'll know it's God. And of course that cart, boom, straight to Jerusalem, right? Well, it doesn't end up in Jerusalem, but it's straight, straight into, back to Israel. Why? Because obviously it was the Lord. Obviously it was the Lord from day one that was judging them. Obviously. But see, we humans, we struggle. We get proud, we get stubborn, and we don't cry out, and we don't repent. Jeremiah says, let it go. Let your eyes fill up with tears. Cry to the Lord day and night. Pour out your heart before him like water. Humble yourself. Get right with him. Consider our disposition before the Lord. Consider the character of our God. Consider the fruit of our doings. Then the lamentation ends with a call to God in regard to his fury. So Jeremiah has called to Jerusalem and called them unto a manner of repentance. Now Jeremiah cries out to God in verses 20 to 22. Behold, O Lord, and consider to whom thou hast done this, Shall the women eat their fruit, the children of, the, of a span long? Shall the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? The young and the old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgins and my young men are fallen by the sword. Thou hast slain them in the day of thine anger. Thou hast killed and not pitied. Thou hast called as in the solemn day my terrors round about, so that in the day of the Lord's anger none escaped nor remained those that I have swaddled and brought up hath mine enemy consumed. Jeremiah calls for a God to remember his people, to consider the reality of what they're going through. This is a, a, a desperate cry unto a measure of mercy. Here we find the first admission in the book that during the siege, women were compelled to consume their own children along with the priests being slain in the sanctuary and the people of the city, both old and young, being slain in the streets. This invasion was pitiless. It was an overthrow which we likely cannot even imagine. Jeremiah expresses these horrors by saying that every terror he had ever feared for the city had come to pass. When Jeremiah was writing those words early on in his ministry, and he was perhaps contemplating what this judgment, right? What the sword and the famine and the pestilence might look like that was called to consume the people. What that might look like. Jeremiah, he expresses here that every single one of his fears, his worst case scenario, played out before his eyes. And so he says in this last little bit here, in the day of the Lord's anger, none escaped nor remained. Those that I have swaddled and brought up hath mine enemy consumed. He says, those that I've seen grow as a, from a child, I've now watched die. This is not happy stuff. This is difficult stuff. And this forms the essence of the second lamentation. Remember, toward an end, 
that end is coming. But we apply this evening. I initially thought when I was going to preach through Lamentations that I was going to preach chapters 1 and 5 together, 3 and 4 together, and then preach 3. That way we could work toward 3 and we could combine together the suffering and the sorrow. But I decided not to do that. And the reason why I decided not to do that is because I have something uh, unique that I'd like to do throughout these chapters in Lamentations. Next time we're together, we're going to be entering into Lamentations 3, chapter into which everything else points, a time of hope, the impact of that hope, not just in the hope itself, but in the presentation, the definite contrast to everything else that we've learned about in the book. But the reason why I want to slow down a little bit is because these chapters give us such a tremendous opportunity to look to Christ. And I want to take the time to do that. The hope that we'll see next week, the sorrow that we have contemplated in all of these contexts, all of this is why Christ came. We consider the kind of world in which Jeremiah was living, a world where he saw things no human eyes should ever have to see where mothers experience sorrows and pains that we would not wish upon our worst enemies. A world of cruelty and remorseless evil of which our civilized culture, our sanitized culture, uh, can only see through movies and video games today. And while the evil described here is an evil the likes of which most of our eyes may never see God willing, we cannot escape the reality backed by proofs of time and history that this evil is real and that it stems not from poverty, not from external stimulus. That evil stems from right here, right in the heart of man, right in your heart and my heart, from the sin that indwells all of us. So that when Paul says in Romans 7 that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, he meant it. The words of Jeremiah in this chapter are not hopeless words. But the only reason why they are not hopeless words is because we interpret these words through the lens of the greatest event in human history. We who are in Christ have been enlightened by God's Spirit to see the depths of the evil of this world and to see at the root of them the essence of the human condition of sin. But we who are in Christ are not overcome by such contemplations of evil for one notable reason. Because we live in the light of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Because the depths of the sorrow and loss that are brought about by sin are utterly overshadowed by Christ's redemptive work. We're coming into the Christmas season. And as we come into the Christmas season, we are celebrating the advent, the first advent of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are celebrating when he came into this world, and it's worth celebrating. You say, well, what's so big about him entering? Isn't it uh, the manner in which he exited that's a big deal? Well, yes, the manner that he exited is a very big deal. The fact that he's coming back is a very big deal. 
But we cannot overlook exactly what the Bible presents about the uniqueness and the importance of Christ entering into this world, of God taking on flesh. So we read in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighted every man that cometh into the world. See, the light shined into the darkness. The darkness of the world. The kind of darkness that I have unfortunately had to relay to you this evening as in the days of that overthrow. The kind of darkness and sorrow and evil that was on display in that time. In its fullness of fruition. And into that world a light shined. Into that world, that darkness of that world was pierced with a light when the Son of God was born in that manger in Bethlehem so many years ago. And the scriptures tell us that the darkness did not want any part of that light, that the true light entered into the world and lights upon every man that comes into this world, but the darkness did not comprehend it, did not apprehend it, did not want it. And when the light shines in this world, though the darkness does not like it, those that rest in darkness have one of two choices. They come to the light or they remain in that darkness. They stand in the cleansing disinfectant of that light or they flee into the darkness of their own sinful hearts. So verses 10 through 12 tell us, 10 through 13, excuse me. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus came into this world and he started preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. He lived some 30, 33 years, never once having done anything to separate himself from the Father. And at the end of that time, as we considered in a memorial together this evening around the Lord's table, he allowed himself to be broken, to be bruised, to be whipped, to be lashed, to have his blood spilt. And the worst part of it all, to bear our sin on the cross. That these verses, verses 12 and 13, might become a reality. So many reject him. So many reject the light. Jeremiah writes of a people in Jerusalem who had rejected the Lord, who had rejected the light, who had rejected the, 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 the message of the prophet, who had rejected the reality of their sinful choices. But he called them 
Come back. Repent. Get right. Align. And the scriptures tell us that as many as receive this light, to them that man, that light, will give the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's the hope. That in the darkness of what we read about this evening, in the sorrow and the evil that comes from the human heart, God sent one to undo it. God sent one to fix it. God sent one to cleanse it. And that every single person has the opportunity to make that choice. And as many as will receive him, them, to them he will give the power to become the sons of God. And how is it that one receives him? Well, even to them that believe on his name. They will be born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they will be born of God. And this evening, in the light of the sorrow of the words of Lamentation 2, I would like to turn our hearts toward this healing balm, which was sent into a world of darkness because of the darkness of which we read about this evening. We live in a very cynical world. We live in a world of sorrow and of pain, of hunger and of loss. And it's indiscriminate, isn't it? It's not like this sorrow and this pain only come to bad people. It's not like this loss only comes to those who have done moral atrocities. It's not as if we can walk around saying, well, evil people, they're going to they're gonna die young and they're going to be the ones that are sick and they're going to be the ones that, that have sorrows and such because it does, just doesn't work that way. The sorrows of life are fairly undiscerning. Now, there are sorrows that are brought upon by choices, right? A number of them. And yet we've seen good godly friends suffer. We've watched good godly men and women die young. We live in a world where the powerful prey upon the weak. We live in a world where there's a harshness, a dog-eat-dog -dog nature to the world around us. And we look at these things and we look at power arrangements and we say it's not right that those powerful people can get out of their jail sentence simply because they have enough money for the lawyers. And these powerful people can avoid uh, uh, coming to some sort of uh, reckoning in this life for their decisions because they have the money to avoid it. And we say, surely this isn't right and surely there's something wrong here. And, and it's true. Because sin has so infested this world, the sin of our own hearts, all rooted in the day when Adam partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to follow that lie that he knew better than God what he needed to follow the allure of being his own God, of being the one who charts his own destiny, of casting off the authority of God and being his own authority. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth together until now, waiting for the day when all the sorrow and injustice and evil will be undone through God's Messiah. And here's the thing. It will be. It will be. 
But what we read here in John 1 is of that day when that light pierced through the darkness. And by God's grace, that calls you to remember the day that that light pierced through the hardness of your own heart. Do you remember that day? Do you know of that day? Are you living in the light of that day? Do you experience that light on a daily basis? Are you walking in that light? Are you seeing the fruit of being born, not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, nor of the will of the flesh, but of the Spirit of God? Do you know what it is to be led by the Spirit of God? Do you know what it is to bear the fruit of the Spirit? Do you know experientially what it is when I say, born again? And if that is you this evening, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have believed on the name of the Lord, on the name of the only begotten Son of God, then that light that came into this world to pierce into that darkness, that light is yours. It's yours. So that when you and I say that we are followers of Christ, we're not just saying we acknowledge Jesus to be God, that he's died on the cross, that he has risen from the dead, but we have invited the light of the world to shine into our hearts, to expose that darkness, to cleanse that darkness, and to walk in the light as he is in the light. And as John tells us in 1 John, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us from all sin. What that means is that until that day when Jesus comes and makes all things new, until that day when the light of the world returns and he cleanses all of the darkness of the cynical and evil world in which we live, until that day, you and I have the privilege through Jesus Christ and through the Spirit of God to walk in that light, to still live in that light. Our Savior is not a reformer. He is a transformer. He didn't come to make sin go away. He came to remove it altogether. He did not come to give you the means by which to discipline yourself out of sin. He came to give you the power to overcome through his spirit. And so when we read things such as what Jeremiah experienced, and when we think of the world around us and the, the sorrow and the suffering, and we recognize that this world is hurtling toward a dark end, let us remember that we are not a part of that end if we are in Christ. And let us live and walk in the light of life. And let us seek to turn others to the light of life. Because as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.